One of the ways that his mercy is more, it's new every morning. One of the ways that we see that mercy really, really tangibly is that God is a speaking God. He, he speaks to us. He tells us. He communicates things about himself to us. And we find that in God's word. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles if you have a copy of God's word. And let's turn to Revelation 19. And so uh, Jim Manning's going to come re- read for us. He's going to begin reading in verse 6. So Revelation 19 and verse 6 is where we will be this morning. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are all the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Thank you so much, Jim. We've been looking at the book of Revelation over the last couple of weeks. And if we had taken time, we don't have that time in this service, but if we had taken time to read through the whole book of Revelation, kind of leading into the passage that Jim just read, a couple themes would emerge. You would get really familiar with hearing songs of praise to God. So repeatedly, these would echo again and again and again. You would hear like multitudes and angels saying blessing and honor and glory and praise. The the book of Revelation is a book of worship. And again, if we had read like the first like 19 chapters, 18 chapters leading up to chapter 19, there also would have been, especially in chapters 16 and 17 and 18, another theme that would really be building. And that is this theme of intense judgment. There's this theme in Revelation, and if you know much about it, you're not surprised that there is judgment coming on the systems that oppose God. World systems that don't just oppose God, but oppose him violently. And and Revelation highlights that. Highlights what happens ultimately when people take good gifts that God has given. That are meant to bless all the inhabitants of the earth. And they take those good gifts and they wreak havoc and death and destruction on this world. They take those good gifts that God has given and they misuse them. What happens ultimately? What happens to things and people that wreck our planet, that take life? There are symbols in Revelation. One of those symbols that, again, emerges, chapter 16, 17, 18, is a symbol of a city a city which is a symbol of a whole system that just opposes God, that defies, defies the Lamb, defies God. And another symbol is wickedness is personified by, and it's a strong image, it's personified by a prostitute or a harlot. And these pictures of a city and a whole collective group of people that just defy God and want to do wickedness and don't care what God has to say, judgment comes on them. We'll be digging into this more 
next week, but if you read Revelation 16 and 17 and 18 and even the first part of 19, that is the context. And with those themes in mind, we could begin to kind of expect or anticipate, okay, where is John going to go with these scenes of praise of God and judgment on people? We know God is a God of mercy, so it wouldn't be out of the question that John might record a vision like this. This isn't in the Bible, but it's not hard for us to imagine John saying, and I saw a great courtroom, and there sat a judge, and the judge looked at the lamb, and he looked at me in my unrighteousness. And that judge said, because of the lamb, you're not guilty. You're righteous. And the multitude praised God. I mean, that, that scene, we can almost expect that something like that would be said. We might expect that another scene, John could say, I saw this market, and it was a wicked market of enslaved people who were being auctioned off to be sold to satanic masters. And I saw the lamb purchase every one of the slaves with his blood and say, you are free. And the multitude praised God because of this act of deliverance. This would not catch us by surprise if that's the way Revelation went in this place. It would not catch us by surprise if we were reading Revelation and we were to read, and I saw a tumultuous, vicious sea, and a multitude was drowning in in it, and the Lamb rescued the entire multitude with the sheer power of his voice and the multitude, praise God. This would not surprise us, all these images we might even expect, but instead of that, we get a different picture. And I have to tell you, you don't necessarily anticipate this is where Revelation is going to go. After talking about judgment and after talking about the throne, Revelation 19 and verse 6, this is what Jim read a, a moment ago. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Hallelujah for the Lord our God reigns. We expect that. And then he says in verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. We expect that. But this is maybe the unexpected twist. John says, he hears the voice saying, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. I don't know if you're reading Revelation, catching all the visions, if you expect wedding bells to be ringing. I don't know if you expect wedding invitations to be seen. I don't know if you expect a celebration like a a wedding reception to just come right down in the middle of all these scenes in Revelation. I've said this for a few weeks, but... I want to sear these images in our imagination and in our heart. I I want us to, when we think of Revelation, we think of pictures like this. And I want to not just think of them in the future, but like bring those into the present and say, we could grow this morning by looking at this picture. Our relationship with the Lord could grow right now. Of all the pictures, he chooses a marriage. Why? Does God do that? The question I want to ask is a simple one. By giving us a picture of marriage, what is God saying about himself? Simple question. By giving us this picture of marriage right in this, like, right in the throes of Revelation, what is God saying about himself? We should know, first and foremost, that God is very interested in marriage. 
God is very interested in marriage. As a matter of fact, he designed marriage in Genesis 2. It's not just a a time-honored social custom that everybody just invented to make the world go around. God invented marriage. And he speaks of marriage over and over again in the scripture. He refers to it. And even when Jesus comes, where does he perform his first miracle? We're told it's at a wedding. He tells stories about weddings. He gives instructions about weddings. He tells us from the beginning, this is exactly what God intended. A man and a woman, a man leaves his father and mother and, the, and clings to his wife. The two become one flesh. This is God's design. And so here we have from Genesis 2, if you're tracking all the way, well, now we're in Revelation 19 reading about marriage. And you'll read about it more in Revelation 21 and 22. God is very interested in this imagery of weddings and marriages. And here we have an amazing picture, and that is the lamb, which we know this is Jesus Christ, marrying a bride. And that bride is God's people. The bride is the people of God, and God has initiated a marriage with them. Think carefully. Marriage as God defines it, where male and female come together, where those who are different in gender, different in family background, different in personality, different in interests, come together and become one flesh and cling closely together. That's the picture God chooses. Earthly marriage is meant to be just a snapshot of this relationship. And I know, I know on earth, our picture of marriage is fractured and flawed a lot of times. I, mean, I, I don't know too many families that, that are unlike my family, where there is plenty of divorce going all, all over in my family tree. But in contrast to the, the flawed picture of earthly marriage that we have, we have this amazing heavenly picture presented of marriage. So what is God saying about himself. He is showing us that when he gives us this picture of marriage, he has initiated a covenant relationship with his people. If we see some things about marriage, we are seeing that marriage is a covenant. And a covenant is where there are promises made, a solemn agreement. Promises made where you are actually giving of yourself in a covenant. Covenants, and you know this, covenants are different in a lot of ways than a contract. Contracts are often based on mistrust. I'm not so sure that you will keep your end of the deal here. And so to protect both of our interests, to make sure this is mutually beneficial, then we better like sign on the dotted line and we better have that sealed and notarized so that everybody can at least go to a document and say, see, in the contract, it says, the covenants are based on the potential of actually losing things. When you hear covenant language like God gives us in Ephesians 5, he he says, husbands, you must love your wives. So much so that just as you take care of your own flesh, you will take care of your wife. You love her as Christ loved the church. This is covenant language, not, not contract. Covenant language says, wives, submit to your own husbands to the Lord. This is covenant language, and this is what God has initiated with us. You give of yourself. This is deep love. This is the kind of love 
that God moves toward us with. What does this say about our God that in Jesus Christ he willingly initiates this kind of relationship with people like you and I? For some in the room, maybe for many, I I don't know, you may feel there are areas of life where you feel like fairly unloved and you may have reasons to question why you ever really could be loved or would be loved by anyone. But when this picture is clear in your mind, that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has moved towards you in love, then what happens is you can be quite certain you're loved. Even more, there aren't formalities in this kind of relationship, not on his side. It's not as if all this Christianity is kind of going through the motions and going through religious formalities, not when this picture is used. This is deep, deep covenant love that God has for us. The Father loved you so much, he sent Jesus. Jesus loved you so much that he gave his life. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, loved you so much that he seals you permanently to Jesus Christ. This is love beyond our comprehension, but this is the relationship that God has initiated with us. This is the picture that he wants us to get. And it's not just covenant, because also another layer of this covenant relationship is that God also makes intimacy with them possible. See, that's part of the relationship of covenant. The goal of intimacy is that the two become one flesh. Sure, they're individuals. That, that's true. But in marriage, now there's something collective. Now they're together. God desires more than just like a, a working partnership. So I've played in golf tournaments where you have four, four people are on a team and it's a low ball scramble. You're trying to get the best score you can get. Everybody's trying to hit their best shot. And at the end, you're working together so that you get the lowest score. Or I've been a part of teams where you have an objective in mind and you're a work team and you're trying to stay on the same page, trying to get along so that you, ca- you can really handle this objective and you can get this deliverable met, meet this milestone. But what God is presenting with the idea of marriage is far more than a work team. There is an intimacy that he is going for, that we would know him as he knows us. That we would know what he's like, not just accomplish a task together. This is the picture that he gives. And what blows my mind is God did not just initiate this for a select group of VIPs. They're, you know, like the, the really high performers spiritually. Maybe you've, I mean, we've got some, some all-star people in our congregation who are amazing at their work and they've, they've been rewarded by recognition by this particular thing when you get to this tier and, and you get this amazing trip or amazing honor because you've reached this But the picture here is not somehow we've reached VIP status and maybe 5% of us Christians will actually get to have this kind of layer of closeness with God. The rest of us will just settle for heaven. That's not the picture. It's that God created all of us and designed us to have this sort of personal relationship with him. Maybe you've gotten caught up in religion and you did not even realize that what God was going for all along was a close relationship with you. In some ways, that's scary because he knows everything about you. In some ways, though, the God of the universe moved towards you, knowing everything about you, and moves towards you in love. Do we get a grasp of this? 
What does this say about our God that in Jesus Christ he has bound himself to us? He actually draws near to us. He does not leave us. You might feel lonely. And I realize we're in a crowded room, but sometimes you can feel the most lonely when you are in a crowded room. You think, nobody, nobody here really knows me, and nobody here really cares about me. But when this picture is like close in your mind and clear in your mind, you can be certain that you're united to Jesus. It's not a relationship that... Yeah, it exists on, you know, some record in a county courthouse, but there's really no meaning to it. That's not this relationship. This changes reality, God moving toward us. God who is present everywhere, but in a special way, Christ dwells in us. Frankly, I don't know how our lives could ever be the same if we truly grasp that. The picture of marriage Let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let us give glory to God. God's showing us some things about himself by using this picture. I think he's also showing us not just covenant and intimacy. I think he's showing us this is permanent. He's showing us a level of permanence. The intention of permanence is this, till death do us part. So I have the pleasure of officiating ceremonies. And we say things like that in the ceremony, till death do us part, or what God joins together, no one should separate. What are we communicating? As long as I live on this earth, I am bound to you. It's an amazing picture. And I hear the words of our Lord. And they're words of permanence. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Nothing will separate you from my love. I think of how powerful those promises are. I contrast that. You hear some songs, and they're beautiful songs. So you listen to... Ed Sheeran, and you listen to a little bit of Taylor Swift, or if you get to like good music, you get to, you know, like Whitney, and you get to Stevie, and you get some like good love songs, and you listen to those, and you think, you know, you sing those, you like those, you love those. They reflect something. But deep down, you know, I, my heart's so fickle, I could sing those and feel those, and in a moment change my mind. But there's another kind of love that doesn't just sing songs. There's another kind of love that commits itself permanently. And it's all about covenant and intimacy and permanence. What does it say about our God that in Jesus Christ he's married to us permanently? You may not feel that secure in lots of your relationships. I I wonder sometimes, does life just so unsettle us that it's just even hard to get settled? Like, what what do I do next? What do I think about next? And then we hear the realities of God's design for marriage. This isn't conditional. Like, you know what? Let's live together and see if we're compatible. This isn't like you're on a clock and you've got to perform a certain way. And maybe, maybe if 
maybe if you deliver in that way, we can make things work, then we'll commit to each other. This is God initiating love toward us in such a powerful way. If I can take a little detour, it is this, it's all of this why Christians are so focused on what marriage means, on its definition, on its permanence, on its role. When, when we hear, when a Christian hears marriage, we hear first and foremost God's covenant with us as a people. And so I, I recognize there are a lot of teenagers, a lot of young adults in this room. Many of you will get married, and I want you listening, and I want you learning all about marriage, not from the Kardashians or from the Bachelorette. I want you, I want you paying attention to what like, real marriage and real love looks like from the one who designed it. I love, I love hearing the vows. It's like holy moments when people and often they're young, are saying these vows. And sometimes you recognize, like, I don't even know that they begin to process what they're saying. I don't know that they're, they realize all the promises that they're making. But one thing I love about being a pastor is I am on that side, and it's beautiful to see the love and the intentionality. But I see those vows on the other side. So when I hear in sickness and in health, I see it on that side. And I see how there are those men and women in our congregation that say, permanent. I meant what I said, for better, for worse, in poverty and in wealth. When I see couples walk through infertility, when I see them walk through children who walk away from the Lord, when I see them deal with sin and pain and cancer and chemo, when I see how Alzheimer's affects it or disability or depression, you realize, like, this is, holy, this is holy stuff that we're talking about. And this is exactly what God has promised to his people by giving us this picture of marriage. Look at what God is saying about himself. That's why we ought to be really, really burdened about so many of our neighbors that don't even know that love like this is possible. They've been burned too many times and they don't even think they could ever be loved. And yet here's the God of everything. Shouldn't someone, shouldn't some of us tell them there is a God who loves you in this way. I think of all the middle schoolers and high, schools, high schoolers, and I think of all the freshmen and sophomores, the juniors and seniors who are going to come to college. Don't they need to know that there is a relationship that isn't just about getting whatever you can get, but about giving? And that relationship has been initiated by God. Who's going to tell them about this? Are there not middle-aged people? Are there not retirees who kind of thought life would go one way and it has not gone that way? And now they're living in a life they just did not anticipate. Who's going to tell them? Who of us is going to take this message? That there is a God who moved toward us in love. What does this say about God? I think this is powerful, certainly for those who are married. I think this is powerful to those in our congregation who are single. Because it tells us. There is a relationship that is is even beyond earthly marriage. And that is the relationship that will last for eternity. That every follower of Jesus, whether on earth who is married or single, every follower of Jesus is married to Jesus Christ. Look at what this says about God. But by describing the marriage of the Lamb, I also, 
I want to look at the groom. I, I do want to look at the lamb, but I also want to look at the bride. That's us. I want to look at what God is saying about his people. What is God saying about his people? Can we focus on the bride? Because he said, the marriage has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And he says, blessed are all those who are invited. And there's this amazing picture where we're kind of, we play two roles in this picture. We, we're kind of part of the invited guests. We're watching all this unfold and we're saying, isn't this amazing that the lamb is marrying the bride? But we're also the bride, so we're participating in this. It's an amazing picture that we have. But I want to draw attention particularly toward the bride because it says the bride has made herself ready. Like most brides that you see, a lot of planning, a lot of detail went into this. And, and it's amazing and it's pure and it's beautiful. It's like every head looking back going, what is the bride going to look like? What a contrast to the pictures you have in Revelation 17 and 18 of the great prostitute who defied God, who could care less about God. You have such a picture here of a a pure bride who represents the people of God, ready to meet him, ready to submit to him, ready to be his. Something struck me this week because I was thinking of this imagery of God's people as a bride. And I realized, like, that didn't just appear in Revelation 19. Actually, as you dig in scripture, and even Nick read about it a moment ago, you go to many books of the Bible and you have God being pictured as the groom and his people, particularly Israel, being pictured as, as the bride. And yet what, what it's often said, so there are passages like this in, in Ezekiel 16. God says, I pledge myself to you. I entered a covenant with you. This is the declaration of the Lord. You became mine. What's, what's so difficult to read is in the passages, so many in the Old Testament where it talks about the bride, the bride has been unfaithful. So you get pictures in Ezekiel 16, a pretty graphic picture of the bride not being faithful, prepared, ready for her husband, but being very unfaithful, not pure. One of the things that breaks your heart as you read in the Old Testament is how often, how often it's like God is pouring out his heart saying, life doesn't work when you run from me. Life doesn't work when you abandon the vows that were made. Life doesn't work when you aren't faithful to the covenant. It seems like over and over again, you have this theme of a a bride that's not that faithful. And God gives warnings saying, you are headed for disaster. But with the warnings comes a promise. And so another kind of image with the bride is, yes, he sought his people out to be a bride. They were unfaithful. But he also says in, in passages like Hosea 2, in that day declares the Lord, there's coming a day where you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in steadfast love, in mercy, in justice, in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Or the perspective of the bride in Isaiah 61.10 that says, I will greatly rejoice in my Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me. This, this 
language sounds like revelation language. And it's picturing a day when the bride that has been unfaithful now is being clothed in righteousness. Just like a bridegroom decks himself with, like a, a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels, there's coming a day when the bride will be ready. And what Revelation 19 says is that day has come. The bride's ready. The focus of attention for the bride is on what she's wearing. But notice, can, can we just take a look again at what the bride is wearing? Because this is what it says in Revelation 19 and verse 7. It says the bride has made herself ready. In verse 8, it was granted to her or it was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So there's two things that stand out, right? She's wearing the righteous thing she's done and all that has been given to her. She's dressed in righteousness and all that has been given to her. She received this adornment, this beautiful wedding dress. She received it as a gift. I don't think the language is accidental. I think it's re-emphasizing what Scripture says again and again. We, don't, we cannot earn this kind of righteousness. We can't behave well enough to be ready for wedding day. We can't do enough in our own strength. There is none righteous. And so God gives his wedding dress, his righteousness, to rebels, to orphans, to sinners, to lawbreakers, to the broken. And he declares us righteous. The bride is ready for this day because God has made her ready. Sometimes when I'm at a rehearsal or at a wedding, I overhear someone talking. They're saying, I just can't believe I get to marry him tomorrow. I can't believe I get to marry her tomorrow. I can't believe this is happening. Maybe we've gotten so familiar with this language that we we are the bride of Christ that we haven't stopped to say, I cannot believe that the one that would know me, like he knew my sinful thoughts this morning. He he knew the backstory. He knew the last week, the last month. Nothing's hidden from him. And he loves us. The description says he gives us the righteousness, but it's also very careful to say, but the bride's prepared herself. And the righteous deeds that she's been, the, the robe that she's been given is the righteous deeds of the saints. So it's not as if this is totally passive, as if we're not doing anything. The bride has gotten ready. And I love this picture. Yes, God works in us, but we are called to work out our own salvation. Yes, God gives rescuing grace, but God also works out his transforming grace through our own efforts, through our pursuit of holiness. You can imagine how much preparation a bride puts into the big day, right? It's like all these things that are are planning a wedding, planning a reception, the premarital counseling, a a new place to live. So much goes into that. And I think that, that does help me understand how my life is bent on being ready to meet the groom, Jesus. And I love the picture here because 
it gets at our motives. Why do you think the bride is getting ready for the big day? Why do you think the bride is preparing so diligently to meet the groom? She wants to be ready. The kind of love that moves toward her means she wants to be ready. I don't know how you think about obedience to the Lord or being holy before him. Sometimes very easy for me to think of that in terms of like a legalism. If I'm honest, it's easy for me to think like I'm going to try to obey so you don't think any less of me. If you've been in church all your life, you have like you follow the church rules. But then there's a picture of this that takes it so far out of legalism and says, you know why the bride would prepare herself? Because she has been overwhelmed by how much the groom loves her. So instead of being completely selfish, which is just my natural tendency, I don't want to meet the bride. I don't I want to meet the groom in that way. I want to prepare by developing a love for others. I don't want to meet the Lord wasting my time on a bunch of dumb things. Don't I I want to meet the Lord hungering and thirsting for his word and his will. Isn't that the way that we want to meet the Lord? Not out of legalism because of the amazing picture of his love. I don't want to meet the Lord proud. I don't want to meet the Lord, the hero of every story I tell. Don't I want to meet the Lord saying, he must increase and I must decrease. I don't want to meet the Lord greedy and hoarding and like maybe if I get a few more toys, then my life can be this much more comfortable I can have this much more pleasure. Do I really want to meet the Lord hoarding everything or do I want to meet the Lord prepared being generous? Do I want to meet the Lord gossiping, saying snide comments that tear this person down and this person down and this person? Is that the way I really want to meet the Lord? Or do I want to meet him with speech that builds up my brothers and sisters in Christ, that ministers grace to those who are hearing? Do I want to meet the Lord doing whatever I want, saying, you know, It's my body. I can be happy however I want to be happy. I'll satisfy whatever appetite I have. I really don't care. Or do I want to meet the Lord prepared even in my body saying this is your temple. It's a living sacrifice. I want to meet the Lord not angry and frustrated, not keeping a record of wrongs, not remembering, yeah, 13 years ago, that person did me wrong. And actually that whole family did me wrong. And actually that whole city, the whole world has done me wrong for every decade of my life. Do I really want to meet the Lord keeping all this detailed record in my heart? Or do I want to meet the Lord forgiving, filled with gentleness and patience? Do I want to meet the Lord okay with a million compromises? A little of this, it's okay. I know it's wrong, but it's just kind of the world we live in. Do I really want to meet the Lord that way? Or do I want to meet him pursuing purity in my heart and in my mind? You see, this is all about grace. It's all about grace. It's all about God. It's all about God working in us as we make every effort to look more and more like Jesus. He's designated good works that we should walk in. That's what Ephesians 2 says. He's called us in Philippians 2 to be lights in a very, very dark and twisted world. I love 
we'll just, we'll end here. I love looking at this final picture. Because in Revelation 19, 7, this is, this is actually the response. So like, well, what do we do with what we've just heard? The words come out to us. Let us rejoice. Let us exalt. Let us be glad. Let us give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride's made herself ready. I've noticed something. I, I reread Revelation this week. And the worship in Revelation gets more and more intense as it goes along. So in Revelation, I mean, it's a book full of worship. But at, at the beginning, it's like you've got the throne. And you've got the one seated on it. and You've got the lamb. And there's lots of worship there. And then that lamb, like he's a worthy lamb who was slain. And you get a picture. Okay, he bled. Well, of course he should be worshipped. And then there's this picture of all nations and every tribe, every tongue. And of course that, like it's building. And I, and I can picture myself in that, all nations. And I say, that's what I want to be a part of. And it's building. But by the time it gets to Revelation 19, it gets more intense because it gets more personal. Because it's not just that the lamb is redeemed and rescued. It's that the lamb is getting married. It's that a reception is happening. It's that vows have been said. A commitment has been made. A covenant has been initiated. And I am part of that. And so the worship kind of goes off the charts as we say, let us be glad, let us exalt, let us rejoice, let us give him glory. Because for eternity, we have been sealed to the Lord. When I come to Revelation 19, I'm, I might not have been expecting the picture of marriage, but it leaves me with this love so amazing. Love so divine. Demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray. Father, all praise and glory to you. We did not initiate a self-salvation effort. We did not crawl out of a, a pit and make ourselves worthy of this. That is the furthest thing from what happened. You saw us in our sin. You saw us in our unrighteousness. And you loved us there. Father, I pray that you would hear our burden for those that do not yet know you. Maybe even those in this room that never realized that Christianity was about this. Maybe they had thought it was about some sort of formalities. I pray that you would come alive in their heart. That there might be those that would trust in Jesus Christ today to do for them what they could not do for themselves. I pray that they would make that known, that they would go public with their faith. May you lead many, many in this room to put their faith in Christ. And I pray that we would forever have this image burned into our heart. So for the days where we feel very insecure, for the days we feel very unloved, for the days we feel very uncertain, that we will know you are united to us forever. And nothing can separate us from your love. How good it's been to read these words and how good it will be on that day we see you face to face and everything we believed becomes sight. So for that day we say, even so come Lord Jesus, even so come. Amen.